Welcome to Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the global food supply chain and speak with experts working to support a planet of plenty. The food we eat brings us together as families, communities, and nations. It underpins our cultures, our economies, and our relationships with the natural world. The UN Food Systems Pre-Summit was recently held to unleash the power of food to deliver progress on all 17 of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Alltech was selected to host a session during the pre-summit event, which featured a robust panel discussion around ensuring food security for a rising population while protecting the Earth's natural resources. The following is the audio recording of their conversation, which was led by Dr. Vaughn Holder, Ruminant Research Director at Alltech. Well, welcome, folks. It's 1.30 here p.m. Kentucky time uh, from sunny Kentucky, and, and welcome to you wherever you are and from whenever you are. I guess there's some good afternoons and good evenings, at least that I know of, but probably a few good mornings as well. So really appreciate folks getting onto this call. Um, it's probably a pretty pretty important topic that we're discussing today as a part of this United Nations Food Systems Summit. This is the pre-summit. Uh, and we're talking about uh, pretty important conversations that affect the future of food production in this world. So I uh, very much appreciate everyone is here uh, because they want to contribute to this conversation. So I'm going to give you uh, a couple of uh, ground rules for the, the discussion today. There's going to be completely open discussion in the chat. Um, that's a place where we can have conversations about the topic today. Uh, we'll keep, let's, keep it, uh, let's keep it kind and let's keep it civil in the chat. Um, we're all here for the same reason, although we may sometimes have opposing viewpoints. So uh, bear that in mind. If you do have specific uh, questions for the speakers, please pose those in the Q&A section. Uh, we will try to get to some of those at the end of the webinar today, but if not, certainly those conversations can be carried on offline as well. And then finally, there will be a recording of this webinar available. We'll probably send that out tomorrow morning, early uh, Wednesday morning. So uh, that will be available as well. So I'm, I'm Vaughan Holder. I'm the Ruminant Research Director here at Alltech. Um, we, we submitted this, this uh, series of questions or this topic to the United Nations for consideration. Um, and very happy to be discussing this here today. So this is the UN Food System Summit, obviously, and what's the point of this whole thing? Well, uh, we, we're talking about the future of food systems uh, to deliver progress on all 17 of the Sustainable Development Goals, and those will need to be considered for, for all uh, factors of this conversation, but we will be focusing very much on the, the Zero Hunger Goal as we talk about protein security as well as good health and well-being. And, and responsible production. We're all looking to make healthier and more sustainable and equitable food systems. And, and very importantly, this is all has to be evidence-based and, and taking scientific approaches to these transformations. And we're trying to, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to ensure that we can provide for the nearly 10 billion people that we expect to have on this planet in 2050. Uh, so no small task at hand for us, really important discussions, uh, and let's take them seriously. So just to break down very briefly what the topic covers here, we're talking about global resource use efficiency for protein production systems. Um, we're talking really about using what we have available to us to, to create protein in the world, right? We're talking about the fact that we only have one planet, we have limited resources on that planet, 
and how should we be distributing the resources that we have available to us uh, to, to best food, uh, serve the, the food security of the future. So that's what it's all about. Um, I, I've gathered a panel of people that are much more qualified than I to address this topic. Um, we'll go through them one by one. Dr. Sarah Place, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer at Elanco Animal Health. Welcome and thank you, Dr. Place. Um, Dr. Tryon Wickersham from Texas A&M has studied uh, protein metabolism um, almost all his life. I, I imagine welcome, Dr. Wickersham, and thank you. Amanda Radke, uh, we, we wanted to have some representation from the producer side of things, very important with so many people over our planet being involved directly in production agriculture. Uh, but she's also a very busy lady. She's an author. She's an author of, of uh, materials online, of blogs, but also a, a children's author of very good children's books. Uh, so Amanda, thank you and welcome. And uh, finally, Dr. Jude Kapper, Chair in Sustainable Beef Production at Harper Adams and a sustainability consultant again. Uh, welcome and thank you, Dr. Kapper. So the point of this is to have a discussion and not a slideshow. So I am going to discontinue those right now. Uh, and, and we'll we'll start the discussion. So I'm going to start off. I think uh, you know we we talk a lot about that ten or nine or ten billion people in 2030, but I think it it serves us well to start the conversation um, with where we actually are right now and and understanding what protein security actually looks like in the world right now. It's very important we start there before we start to decide how we want to change our production system. So. Uh, Dr. Kappe, if you would uh, come off mute and, and start this discussion for us, please. Uh, where, where do we sit as far as protein security, or we, do we have a false sense of security right now? That's a really good question. Thank you. And it's a real pleasure to be here and involved in this uh, discussion today. Yeah, we're at uh, quite a crossroads now, aren't we, in terms of what we do, what we eat, what we choose to eat. And um, from the start, I think it's very clear that there is no one size fits all, whether we're talking about global diets, dietary choices, or even production systems. Frankly, we've got as many livestock production systems in the world as almost we do producers. Um, so to assume that we're just talking from a US perspective, a European perspective, as I am um, at the moment, um, is untrue. We have to think globally, but act locally, as it were. And we certainly know, to be fair, that ruminant livestock do have an impact on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, according to data from the FAO, for example, uh, approximately 14.5% of our global greenhouse gas emissions come from ruminant livestock. Um, but we've got to think a little bit more deeply than that and think about the nuances. Um, so, for example, um, it's important to recognise that there are a sizable um, number of our global population rely on livestock absolutely for their income, for their health, for their education. So we have billions of smallholder farmers across the globe who absolutely rely on livestock. And livestock give us more than just food. So obviously they provide us with protein and energy and essential fatty acids and minerals. But they always also have huge roles in terms of byproducts, in terms of pharmaceuticals, manure, leather, etc, etc. So at the moment, we know that we have a sort of dichotomy going on. We have wealthier nations who could be considered to 
to be consuming too much protein per person per day, whether animal or plant-based, just overconsumption of food. And then we have a huge proportion of the globe who have less food available, whether protein or not. And I guess what I would really like to see going forward is a recognition of two things. One, and I think um, Dr. Place is going to talk about this later, the best use of land on a global basis and livestock have a huge role to play in that but also the recognition that the reason that we have livestock is to produce protein and frankly it makes me really angry when I see quotes all the time saying livestock use x amount of land but they only give us 12% of our calories or 20% of our calories or 5% of our calories depending who's quoting it. We need livestock for that high quality affordable protein, affordable I should say to many of us in the developed world. So we've got to think about strategies and innovations across the globe that will that are appropriate and applicable to all livestock systems so that we can improve. Yeah, so really important conversations and, that, and that's using the right metric, Dr. Kappa, to measure these things, right? Because uh, we, we often talk about producing a certain amount of food per amount of land or per amount of greenhouse gas or whatever it might be. Uh, but, but the amount of food is not necessarily what matters, the kilograms of, of food that it's produced, it's about limiting nutrients, right? And we, we're focusing very much on, on protein right now. And uh, when we correct some of the, the papers that have recently come out showing that when we correct for poor digestibility and poor amino acid composition in, in some of our plant proteins, we go from having a world that is mostly protein secure to being to having 105 out of the 190 something countries being protein insecure uh, at the current moment. So. Uh, I think these are important conversations, what metrics we use to discuss our food systems of the future. It's not necessarily uh, how many kilos of a certain thing we can produce, we, we're, we're chasing nutrients. I think that's important to, important to discuss. Um, Dr. Place, something um, that Jude mentioned about uh, the, the, this idea of humans and animals competing for the same food sources, obviously, because we do get the uh, the discussion coming on a lot of the time that, well, if we just repurpose the food that we're giving to the animals, we could feed a lot more people with that. Uh, you've, you've looked at this pretty closely in some of your research and some of your work. Do you want to talk, talk us through that a little bit, Dr. Place? Yeah. yeah thanks, Vaughn. And <clears throat> again, thanks for having, having me this afternoon, this evening. So, yeah, I think that's a really great question and a good, a fair critique that folks put forward of, hey, you know, it, let's think about this from a resource competition perspective and, and really dig into this idea of, you know, is there um, competition directly between animal feed and human food, right? And this idea, could we, could we nourish more people, right? If we fed some of these plant sources that we're feeding to animals to humans. And so if we take a step back and we look at that from a very large macro perspective, there's a, a nice analysis that was done by the UNFAO looking at this of all domesticated terrestrial species, right? Everything from poultry to sheep to cattle around the world um, and analyzing, you know, what, what is the actual global total amount of feed that these animals are consuming, which is around 6 billion tons of dry matter every year. But what they also found is that you know, 86% of this is actually not directly in competition with human food, right? 
And so there's some interesting nuances there, right? One is that it varies depending on where you are. I think what you just mentioned is really, really important, right? We, we talk about these things in aggregate level sometimes and in a global level, and that's good. It's good to ground ourselves, but also on the ground realities can vary. And the other thing is this changes depending on what species we're talking about, right? So cattle, sheep, and goats, the ruminant animals that tend to emit methane gas and tend to get more of the attention with regard to climate change are actually also the animals that compete far less directly with human food, right? And that's just because of their unique digestive system. The animals that tend to not emit methane, right, because of their digestive system, poultry species and, and swine, are the ones that compete more directly with human food, right? Just because they're monogastric omnivores, simple stomach omnivores, just like we are, right? And so they tend to eat more high quality protein sources directly that potentially could be competing with human food. So I think that's just that important nuance is that there is competition, but it's probably not as high a degree as some folks think. And there is this variation across species, and I think the other part of that is when we think about that global amount of feed, a lot of it is actually byproducts or co-products of human food production, right? And there's so many examples all over the world. Um, you know, if we were just to think of an example, you know, here in the United States where we have a lot of dairy production in the, in the U.S. state of California, we also have a whole lot of crop agriculture that takes place in that, in that state, um, so everything from orange production to almond production and dairy production is happening right there. And what's interesting is all those industries are really tied together, right? Where we have oranges that are going for, for orange juice and making citrus pulp as a byproduct that ends up in the, the diets of dairy cows or things like almond holes, right? When we're processing almonds, whether people are eating them directly or producing almond milk, quite frankly. So I think that's a great example of we sometimes in our mind formulating, formulate these things as either or, when really they're all connected, if that makes sense. Um, so if we think about it from a sustainability perspective, it's saying, how do we strengthen those ties where it makes sense? Because that is essentially cycling nutrients through the system. And that's really one of those key benefits of having livestock in our food system is they're able to take the parts of plants that we cannot consume that are human inedible and essentially upcycle them to higher quality products, as was mentioned earlier, right? Nutrient dense foods um, and extract more nutrients from those, right? And hopefully we're able to tighten those nutrient cycles and minimize pollution because that's what we're also concerned about as well. Yeah, it's a really good point on, on connecting these systems together. Sarah, do you think that, um, you know, we, we're sort of talking in, in terms of, or as industry, in terms of it's plant ag versus animal agriculture. And I think that, that we need to look at the fact that there's a place for both. You know, we can get a significant proportion of our protein coming from plants directly, which is a very efficient way of doing it. I think animal protein can fill in some of those gaps in terms of nutrients that might be missing from a plant-based diet. And, and these things are compatible, I would say, rather than saying it's one or the other. Um, but certainly in terms of those raw materials that we're utilizing, right, we, we take all those raw materials off of, off of the food production stage. We are going to end up being in a, a nutrient deficit as a, as a planet, as a people, and you take all that protein production off the table. I wonder what we might think of the consequences of some of those, where do those raw materials go if we're not putting them into animal production? wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, so I think that is a very good point, Vaughn, of, of 
as we think about all these choices we can make, the consequences of, of different choices, right? So um, my mind always goes to, it's, it's a mass balance, right? We're creating this certain amount of material, again, from the plants, you know, roughly a global average ratio is for every 100 kilos of human food we get from crops, we generate 37 kilos of byproducts, right? So the question is, what happens to those byproducts? <clears throat> Does it make sense to, in many cases, feed them to livestock and, again, essentially extract more energy and nutrients from that plant material? Also generate manure that can then be used to cycle those nutrients back to crops, right? Um, or does it make sense to, right, combust them or put them in a landfill or whatever the choices are, right? So I think it's it's all about those choices and the right answer isn't going to be the same anywhere. But I think it's it's just good to ground ourselves in, uh, you know, natural ecosystems don't typically just have plants, right? They have a whole bunch of trophic levels and the same is true in our agro ecosystems, right? That's why we have these things working together, quite frankly. Um, and, and again, that nutrient density piece that you mentioned is, is super important, right? The, the proteins are, are not all equivalent across the board. I know we have more of an expert here that could speak on that uh, in Dr. Wickersham than myself. Yeah, that's a good transition, Sarah, I think, to, to Dr. Wickersham. Uh, Dr. Wickersham, you've, you've studied protein metabolism quite in, intensely, and I've followed your career for a while. But uh, recent uh, research, you've been working on this concept of protein upcycling that ruminants do. Uh, can, can you comment for us a little bit on uh, looking at ruminants' contribution to, to protein production uh, and the unique way in which they do it? And, and perhaps also comment a little bit on what types of things do actually contribute to protein supply in our world and what types of things don't. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When we look at ruminants, the real value they bring, and Dr. Place talked about this already to some extent, is they can take low quality sources of amino acids. So amino acids that don't necessarily meet human protein requirements for essential amino acids or um, what more recently being called uh, digestible indispensable amino acids. And those cattle or ruminants to be specific through their relationship with the microbes can take non-essential amino acids or even non-protein nitrogen. And the microbes in the rumen can convert that and the animal can use that to synthesize meat protein or milk protein that we as humans can then consume. And those sources of protein are highly digestible and do a great job of um, meeting our amino acid requirements. If you look at the FAO's own work on amino acids and the digestible indispensable amino acid scoring system, you look at some propping systems like corn would be the primary example or wheat, they do a very poor job, less than 50 on the dias score. Whereas you look at animal source proteins, they're all in excess of 100 meaning they really positively contribute to our amino acid supply. The other real big advantage about the ruminant production system is they can utilize grasslands as well as all the co-products that Dr. Place talked to you about. And in particular, in the United States, one of those would be distiller's grains. So whether you think right or wrong, produce a lot of fuel from corn and a tremendous byproduct that we have to feed a lot of would be distiller's grains. And if we're not feeding them, the ruminant animals, the other alternatives, incur a large environmental cost in terms of burning them or using them for fuel or um, depositing them in landfills. Uh, so feeding them to ruminant systems really um, provides a lot of benefit. The other thing to kind of think about as we think about protein supply, if you look at, at least to my knowledge, most ecosystems are nitrogen limited in general. And so it's kind of fitting 
that when we look at human food supply, one of the challenges we have is sufficient amino acids in our diet and meeting those amino acid requirements. So really any food source that can take low value sources of nitrogen or if you look at soybean, take nitrogen out of the air and convert that into something that humans can consume is a real benefit in consuming a mixture of plant and animal proteins. Probably provides the best way forward and a diet that blends those two together well would be best for meeting people's amino acid requirements. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty important. And that that metric, I think, applies to everything, right? Uh, we, we have to look at what is being used to produce the protein and, and whether it's creating new protein or not. Uh, I think fermentation is one of the big ones, right? There's, uh, there's fermentation that occurs in, in animals, uh, which, which ruminants are able to harness very nicely. But there's also fermentations that we can that we can harness the power of outside of animals um, to convert non-protein nitrogen to, to edible protein. So those, are, those types of things are contributing to protein supply. Obviously, nitrogen fixation is the big one, right, in plants. Uh, the fact that plants can convert atmospheric nitrogen uh, with the help of some friends uh, to, to things that we can eat is really the source of most of our, our protein that we, that, that we have available to us, whether it, it goes through an animal or not. But I think that when we do consider the future of food production, I think these are the things we have to step back and say, when we're looking at the future of food production, do the things that we are proposing contribute to the protein supply uh, that we have available to us on the planet? Or are they repackaging existing protein from existing sources into another form? Because that's fine and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. We do that in meal preparation all the time, but we need to not uh, confound the fact that that's not supplying uh, additional protein. I'd like to add one thing, you know, in the United States, we're probably um, one of the most dependent on human edible sources of protein in our beef production system for sure anyway. But when we look at the value of those systems, even in the United States, to contribute protein, the net protein contribution is the number we use to measure that. And we generally get about three times as much protein out of that system, human edible protein that's a high valuable source, than we put into it. So basically we get a return of three to one and that seems to be a real positive improvement. In my opinion, the other thing as a result of those feeding systems is we decrease the amount of methane produced per kilo of product through a formulation of better diets. And that's not to say every system needs to go to that because not everybody has that resources, but it's just something to keep in mind with that repackaging you mentioned. No, that's that's great points. I want to shift gears for just a second uh, and bring in a little bit of the human element into this. Amanda, you're a, you're a rancher, you're a beef producer. Uh, I want to get a little bit of your perspective on this. You know, we talk about, Dr. Place was saying, 1.3 billion people in the world rely on agriculture either directly uh, for, for nutrients or income. So, we're talking about a large human burden if we're talking about removing animal production from, from our food systems. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what sustainability means to you as a, as a rancher and as a producer and, and the types of things you're doing to address and to look at your sustainability? Uh, sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be here representing the independent uh, cattle ranching community. I'm also a mom of four beautiful children uh, who benefit from the nutrient-dense products that we raise here on our ranch. Uh, what sustainability means to me is, I guess, to be truly sustainable on the land. I, I think farmers and ranchers are 
strive to be much more than that. Uh, we strive to utilize our natural resources to the best of our abilities. And one of the things that I hear from the ranching community is that they wish the naysayers could see it from our perspective. So we can talk all day from the 30,000 foot view of what the future of food really looks like. But I think a better testimony would be if you could see what's outside my dining room window right here in South Dakota. Uh, so there's no one size fits all approach to producing food. There's not a one size fits all approach to the best diet on the planet. And there's uh, you know, certainly not a one size fits all um, way to manage the land because so much of the landscape is vastly different. So what I can grow here on the rolling hills in South Dakota varies greatly from what can be grown on the California coast or somewhere all the way around the world. And so right here in South Dakota, like I said, we have rolling pasture hills with native grasslands that have been growing here for hundreds of years. Uh, the roots of these plants go down hundreds of feet. That's capturing carbon, that's keeping cover on the soil. When cattle graze on our, my pastures here in South Dakota, they're aerating the soil with their hooves. They're naturally fertilizing that landscape. Uh, they are part of that water cycle. They're upcycling that cellulosic material that would otherwise sit and, and be underutilized, and they are upcycling it into nutrient-dense beef and hundreds of life-enriching byproducts as well that would have a great uh, environmental footprint if we were to replace these items with synthetic options. Um, not only that, but any landowner understands that there are principles to maintaining soil health that we need to follow uh, to maintain our landscapes. That includes maintaining soil cover. So the fact that my pastures stay covered year-round around, uh, like I said, does capture that carbon, but it also protects wildlife habitat. Uh, limited disturbance, so minimizing tillage and trying to keep cover on that soil by planting cover crops. I can tell you it's an amazing thing to see uh, in between, you know, rows of corn when you plant cover crops, which might be turnips and radishes, uh, to see a cow go and, and pick up a big turnip and eat it in the fall and know that they're adding nutrients to that cropland as well when they're eating some of these uh, cover crops that are growing in our fields. Also, we believe in maintaining diversity of the soil and mimicking nature as much as we can. So that means cool and warm season grasses, broadleaf plants, again, those cover crops. And then we practice things like rotational grazing, where we try not to overgraze. Uh, so we will move cattle from paddock to paddock to promote new growth. And one thing that's not talked about enough is the fact that when there are ruminant animals, on the landscape, they are reducing the dead brush, promoting new growth, and ultimately reducing the spread of wildfires. And so often we make the mistake thinking if we leave the land alone and don't touch it, it would be better off environmentally. But when we can utilize the landscape by putting ruminant animals on these lands that are too steep, hilly, or rocky for modernizing or farming, we can create and produce a nutrient-dense product that's packed full of protein and help to enhance human life around the world. Um, and so the final note I want to share is that, you know, we're being told constantly that we can live without animal proteins, and yet consumers around the world uh, are expected to increase their meat consumption by 1%. And one thing I'm really mindful as a producer in the United States 
is that around the world where uh, the growing middle class uh, continues to expand to different places for the first time ever, what's the first thing people do when they have a little extra disposable income? They add animal fats and proteins to their rice and beans diets. Now, why is that? Because this is a rich source of protein. So I think at the end of the day, farmers and ranchers are trying to serve people in the best way possible. And for us to maintain our freedoms to make the best dietary choices as individual sovereign beings, we need to continue to have a wide variety of production practices, including uh, beef production, to feed a hungry planet and meet the needs, the nutritional needs of people here and around the world. Yeah, man, it's, it's a great point that you make about uh, nations when they become more wealthy is the fact that they, they start to look towards getting more animal-type proteins into their, into their diets. And it makes a really good point is that we've got to be really careful because we're typically discussing these types of topics. The, the UN Food Security Summit is looking at the future of food from, from the, the first world country's perspective, right? I think... Uh, we, we're in, in a lot of danger of applying things that we might want to apply on first world countries and the, the knock-on effects that they might have in, in some poorer countries. Uh, mm -hmm. I wonder, I'm not going to put this to a specific person on our panel, but I'd be really interested in hearing the thoughts of how we take a summit like this and look at it more granularly. Jude, you, you spoke about thinking globally and applying it uh, granularly on the ground. I mean, that's, that's obviously pretty important because none of this stuff applies universally across these systems. The objectives are different across these systems. I think I can afford to, if I wanted to go vegetarian, I could afford to probably figure out what amino acids I might be missing and what micronutrients I might be missing and be able to diet, uh, balance the diet. But, but a lot of people don't have the, 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 the means to do that. In, in a lot of places. So certainly open it up to this, this question to the panel and see uh, how, how do we think about this in terms of from an international perspective, from the UN's perspective. If I can jump in here, I think, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, as we've seen from the chat, there are a lot of global averages, a lot of everybody knows this happens and everybody knows that happens. And it's really, really important to do more research to understand that a livestock farmer in Kenya with two cows is absolutely not the same as a ranch with a thousand cows. They've got different challenges, they've got different infrastructure, they've got different soils, different climate, different levels of income, you know, all of these things. I've done some work with some of the um, NGOs or charities that um, supply livestock and information and tools and technologies to some of the smallholder farmers in the world. And the difference that a single cow can make is absolutely astounding. There's a, uh, there's a quote that I often use, which always makes sort of tears come to my eyes to a certain degree, which is from a lady who was helped by the charity Send a Cow. And she's now... Um, aged about the same age as me, and she's a bank manager in, in Africa. Um, but she says that she couldn't have become a bank manager. She couldn't have got that job. She couldn't have had that education, except for the fact that her family were given a dairy cow, you know, 20 odd years ago. So just the income, the food, the improved health, the ability for those kids to go to school and, and get that education is absolutely huge. And we can't ignore that based on the rhetoric which we apply to larger farms in more industrialized areas of the world. And so there is no one size fits all, you know, there is no, oh, if you just do this, if you just feed this, if you just 
hoe your soil like this, it'll apply on every farm across the world. It's simply not possible. And so one of the things that I'd really like to see out of this summer, well, two things. One is the, is the recognition that there are almost as many livestock farming systems in the world as there are livestock farms. You know, no two farms are the same. And therefore, we've got to find solutions, tools, technologies, management practices that can be applied across the globe with due regard for the culture, the region, the challenges, the climate, and then to have better outreach to apply them. Because if you're a farmer who doesn't have internet in Kenya, let's say, you know, you can't just Google the best cows to have or the best way to apply my fertilizer. So I think almost all of us on this are talking from a fairly privileged point of view, um, but we've got to think about it globally. And then, as I say, act, act locally, have applicable, appropriate solutions for every local farm in the world. I would definitely agree with what you said. And I think that's what's really key, right, is is sometimes these discussions, they they kind of devolve into, you know, the same talking points. And at the end of the day, it's like we, we forget that we share a tremendous amount in common, right? Everybody wants to hopefully have better development outcomes for people, right? I think it, at the end of the day, if we look at the the 17 sustainable development goals, right? And and think about what's really at heart in each one of those, there's a lot of agreement, right? And so I think it's more of realizing there is no one answer, but also livestock will be a part of the food system in 10 years, in 20 years, and in 30 years. That is reality. So how do we keep improving that system and hit on all those points that Jude just made, right? That the challenges in each area, right? Everything from how do you improve productivity in certain spaces? How do you improve people's incomes and livelihoods so they're not forced to make decisions that potentially lead to environmental degradation to take care of their family, right? The on-the-ground realities that some people are concerned about. That's not going to be solved, right, just by, unfortunately, most likely changing somebody's diet, right? It's going to be how do you improve people's livelihoods where they're at in all these different ways. And, and that is a bear of a challenge, right? So I think coming out of this um, this summit, this pre-summit, it, it hopefully is that recognition that, hey, the, there isn't going to be one solution. We probably, we, we agree on these high-level goals and recognize that how we're going to get there is going to be a whole bunch of different ways. Because what works for Amanda in South Dakota doesn't even work for a different rancher in the United States because it's incredibly varied depending on what climate you have, what resources you have, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's that's what's really key here is just recognizing the complexity of this and that it's just chock full of value judgments. There is no single right answer in a lot of this. That's a good point, Sarah. And, and let's perhaps change gears a little bit here and talk about the things that we can do. Obviously, you, you just indicated that those are very wide and broad and varied. <laughs> And us as as a agriculture animal science community are looking at probably a lot of these things that apply differently uh, in 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 poorer countries than they do in. And maybe we should start there, Sarah, just to talk about uh, the opportunities that we have for improving efficiency in the emerging markets and what that can actually do for for the global efficiency and and also environmental credentials of livestock production. Yeah. Right. There's, there's so many issues that fall under this really wide umbrella of sustainability. If we were to just narrowly focus, though, on greenhouse gas emissions for, for now in this part of the discussion, 
you know, what we know from the FAO from their 2013 report tackling climate change through livestock is that if we were able to take, you know, essentially the top 10th percentile production practices and get those applied across the board, have that become the new global average of how we're producing meat, milk, and eggs around the world, we could actually lower greenhouse gas emissions 30% and keep output constant, right? So what does that really mean in practical terms? It just means there's a big opportunity gap of just getting the things that we know how to do well to those folks on the ground and understanding what are the real barriers, right? Because folks aren't just not doing these things voluntarily, right? There's, There's barriers for why. But it's everything from, you know, how do we make sure that we're delivering the right kind of feed to animals, right? Improving their nutrition, their nutritional status, um, essentially their welfare, because oftentimes that's a hindrance for productivity of animals, and which is something that leads to more human nutrition, but also fewer environmental impacts per unit of meat, milk, and eggs that we produce, right? So, for example, there's, there's estimates that we lose essentially 20% of animal production around the world because of disease, right? So everything from vaccinations, right? Preventing um, and having that good nutritional health status, for example, is really, really important. So, so many, so many examples there and a lot of great work. You know, I I would tip my hat to the folks at like the Livestock Lab at University of Florida. They've done a lot of great work there of just showing, you know, some simple ways of applying stuff that we kind of take it, take for granted here in developed countries, technologies and innovations that we have readily available to us. How do we make sure that we can adapt that to other places of the world and and improve their productivity? Again, hopefully have that co-benefit of livelihoods, nutrition, and reducing environmental impacts all at the same time. So I think there's, that's just one example. There's tremendous opportunities for us to, to lower environmental impacts and produce more high quality nutrition for more people in the future. Appreciate that, Dr. Place. Um, Very well said. Uh, Dr. Wickersham, do you want to talk about uh, a little bit of the things I know your program has focused some on on trying to reduce some of these uh, emissions outputs on what what's practical and, and what we've done, what we've accomplished over the last few years. Any thoughts? So I think it builds a lot on what Sarah said. And when you look at even in the developing world, there's probably a greater response surface for improving sustainability or reducing methane emissions through some of the technologies talked about, vaccination, improved reproduction, one thing I'd like to address real quickly is whether or not the research is biased. And I guess in my opinion, and it's an opinion, this is me offering opinion now. When I set about asking questions about the sustainability of beef cattle production systems in the United States, my goal is to, and sometimes, because um, I'm a rancher as well, we have a small cow-calf operation in Texas. My goal is to find out the actual answer. And then when I know the answer, whether the answer is what I want it to be or not, I share that answer and then hope that we can improve, right? The goal is continuous improvement and mitigation strategies to try and help make animal source proteins a more sustainable source of protein to meet human demands. And I think if the answer wasn't favorable or so unfavorable that we need to look at something different, I think it would be practical to go and look at something different and move to other things and move to other sources of food. I just just because I'm a beef cattle nutritionist does not mean that I necessarily approach all things as though beef is superior. I recognize our weaknesses. And the other thing is, you know, an inherent problem with beef cattle or an inherent challenge, a challenge would be a better word, is ruminant fermentation is going to produce methane. 
And so um, there's been some comments, are we working on ways to reduce methane? And I think that's been a continual challenge in all ruminant production systems um, for at least the last 50 years, because not only is it an environmental cost, but it represents a cost to producers because that methane's lost energy, energy that the cow can't use to grow, can't use to produce milk or produce protein. So I forget the original question, which isn't uncommon with me, but yeah, I think a lot of people around the globe, I think, you know, New Zealand and Australia are really leading the way in doing genetic selection for animals that have reduced methane. We look at some of the new techniques in ruminal metagenomics and the microbe and how we can select for different microbes to reduce methane production. I think those are all things the scientific community is trying to do in order to help make livestock production systems more sustainable. Thank you, Dr. Wickersham. Uh, Dr. Kappa, again, I, I guess the same question for everyone. Uh, what are we doing and what should we be doing to, to make these, these protein production systems better as we look forward to, to accepting the, the UN food systems challenge of, of making better food systems? What do we have to do? So to echo what um, both Dr. Place and Dr. Wickersham have said, it, it is about doing everything better. And that isn't the cool, sexy, high-tech answer where if you just use magical protein powder A, you know, everything is solved. We do have to do absolutely everything better on, on every single farm. Um, but also just, just to come back to a, a comment that was made in the chat, there's an awful lot of research on this worldwide, particularly with ruminants in terms of cutting methane emissions. So we know that, that there are certain feeds that can be used. For example, I just saw a paper today that showed that if we use oats as opposed to barley in dairy cow diets, we can cut methane emissions by 5%. There are vaccines that will target the actual bugs in the rumen that produce methane. There are various different companies producing feed supplements to cut methane while maintaining productivity. And um, there are even some sort of cow gas masks out there, um, which are leading to some really interesting innovations in terms of cutting methane. And to come back to a comment earlier about the metrics, um, there's also some new resource, um, new research from Oxford University looking at using the best metric. And there's a new one called GWP star, global warming potential star, which looks at the fact that methane actually breaks down in the atmosphere over time. So if this is a, a um, adopted on, on a global basis, this is going to cut the carbon of beef, for example, by about 50 to 60 percent overnight. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone's done anything better in terms of farming, we're just accounting for it differently. But we've got to use the best science. And I don't say that because I'm a beef professor. You know, I want the best science, whether it's good or bad for beef production. I think we need the most clear, accurate, transparent science. And there's always a tendency for those who are opposed to animal ag to say, well, you're biased, you would say that. We all work in beef on this panel. Of course, we are gonna be pro cutting greenhouse gas emissions, but not at the expense of livestock. So we've got to have that balance though, I think. Yeah, that's so critical. Uh, and we, we would probably need another hour and a half, Dr. Kappa, if we're going to discuss that one. But but having clear metrics is absolutely critical. Understanding the effect of ruminant methane on warming is absolutely critical. And that's an ongoing discussion uh, among scientists. And, and, and it's not a settled discussion, to be quite fair. And that does make what we are setting out to do here quite challenging. Even looking at the process of sequestration uh, of carbon in soils. This is something that we, we we don't often hear about from the animal ag side, but we do know that 
that animal agriculture can increase sequestration of carbon. Very, very difficult to measure and to measure accurately on site. And so that's a whole part of the carbon cycle that you talk about, that methane is a part of that carbon cycle. Uh, and we don't treat it that way in our current calculations. And I'm going to leave it there, uh, Dr. Kappa, because as I say, that is a can of worms that that needs another hour and a half. Amanda, I want to I want to leave it with you. We've, we're running out of time, but we do have a few minutes. From the producer perspective, what do we need to do to ensure a food secure future? Yeah, I, I would like to share just some boots on the ground thoughts uh, as a role from my role, not only as a rancher, but as a mom who has benefited from from beef uh, significantly in my own life. Uh, so I think just to start, if we're going to reduce, you know, our diets to simply looking at the carbon emissions, then we need to truly compare um, apples to apples. And so calorie for calorie, what beef has to offer is an, an incredible nutrient-dense product. Uh, to get the same amount of protein that you could get from 180 calories in a three ounce serving of beef, you would have to eat about 600 calories of broccoli or quinoa or peanut butter. And so we need to really start comparing, you know, the water use, the natural resources used and those kind of things to get that nutrient density that we get from beef. Another thing I think that's largely ignored in the equation is there are lots of things that we do in our daily lives that maybe wouldn't be essential uh, to us surviving. So whether that's having a companion pet uh, that also emits emissions or using things that, that are in our lives that are highly, you know, consumable and, and tossed and, and even just the foods, not what we eat, but how much goes wasted. Uh, so if we are truly going to eat our way out of climate change, I think the biggest two things that we could focus on are number one, the fact that, you know, here in the United States, 40% of the food we grow here, meat or not, uh, ends up in landfills. Um, and so if we want to focus on reducing our waste and respecting the harvest, I think that's critical. And the second part or piece of that that we need to focus on is distributing that food that would otherwise go wasted and getting it to parts of the world where food is more scarce. And so those are two big things I would challenge the UN and any stakeholders in food production to really focus on. Um, on the flip side, like I said, as a mom, and I, I see in the comments here, there's a lot of folks commenting that we don't need animal fats and proteins in our diets at all that we can subsist on um, plant-based diets. And I would again reiterate the fact that there's no one-size-fits-all dietary approach to achieving optimal health and nutrition. As an example, here in the United States, our dietary guidelines for Americans uh, push to reduce our, our consumption of animal fats and proteins like meat and dairy and have really pushed for an increased consumption in grains, fruits, and vegetables. Now, even I myself as a rancher, uh, really bought into that. And for years, I followed the dietary guidelines. I I almost felt guilty about eating the, the beef that we were raising on our ranch. I, I tried to fill my plate with all the things the government was telling me to. Um, I was overweight, infertile, depressed, and was trying my hardest to be as healthy as I could be. Uh, I did like what so many hundreds of thousands of people that I, I am a part of in some meat-centered communities have done. And I focused on a 
nutrient-rich diet that focused on meat. Uh, within a few months, I had regained my fertility. I had three back-to-back -back healthy pregnancies and beautiful babies after years of infertility. Um, and I'm living proof that um, just because someone else can thrive on a plant-based diet doesn't mean that everyone can. And so ultimately, every stakeholder in the food production system should be focusing on serving the needs of their customers, whether that's, you know, raising almonds and broccoli or raising nutrient-dense beef. Uh, there is a customer that needs these products and to truly be secure and to be free and to be able to make choices that best fit the needs of our families is incredibly important uh, to having a happy, healthy food system and, and population here, in, here and, and around the world. Yeah, that's well said, Amanda, and that's really a, a theme of this entire discussion, right? It's There's never one size fits all, all situation for everything. And, and to be honest, the science is never settled. And even the science of what the ideal human diet is, is certainly uh, not settled and is an ongoing social experiment. So uh, we follow that. I, I think from my perspective, I, I want to stop here. We are up against the time. I want to thank all of our speakers for being on here today. A really important discussion, a discussion that's just starting. I think that all options are on the table. This is anytime I have to address this, this topic internally or externally, I, I keep saying all options are on the table. This is a challenge. We have over 50% of the countries of the world are currently protein insecure. This is something that we can't ignore. And the discussion needs to focus on how we can feed this planet now as well as moving forward. Uh, into the future. So I think this is a good start. Really, it's all about choice. It's about maintaining the choice of all our people in the face of a very, very difficult challenge uh, that we'll get through together. So I appreciate again. Thank you for the speakers. Thank you for the robust discussion in the chat. We'll be addressing some of those as we as the days go past. But everyone appreciate getting on. Thank you so much for the attention. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you all. This episode of Ag Future has featured a discussion from the UN Food Systems Pre-Summit around ensuring food security for a rising population while protecting the Earth's natural resources. The Pre-Summit event was hosted by Alltech. I'm Tom Martin. Thanks for listening. This has been Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts.